Welcome everybody to the online uh, weekend experience. My name is Dan and uh, it's just really awesome to be here with you. I'm excited to continue in uh, our conversation that we've been having for a couple weeks called Review. And what we've said is that we live in kind of a review culture, uh, whether you're going to go to the movies or you're going to go to a restaurant or wherever, man, we, we are really focused on finding exactly what we want and making sure that uh, whatever we're going to get into kind of matches our criteria. In fact, we even do that with churches. A lot of times if you know, we're going to investigate a new church or if we're going to think about our church, we kind of view it through the lens of a kind of review uh, culture. And what's so interesting is that even when we think about reviewing different churches and what we prefer, that actually preserved for us in the Bible is Jesus' review of some churches. And so uh, in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus, writing to churches uh, in Asia in about 90, 95 AD, Jesus gives a review of his churches. And we get insight into what Jesus prefers, what he likes, what he's proud of. And we also get insight into some things that he's a little bit concerned about. And so, like I said, I'm real excited to get into this series. And I actually just want to jump right in. And we're going to go ahead and head to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 uh, through 17. And so I'm just going to jump in. And I hope that's all right. I'm just really excited to, to get into this with you. So starting in verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. All right, and so this, again, I kind of just want to stop right here and look at Pergamum for a second. I want to give us a little bit of a cultural context to see uh, what, what Jesus is going to be working with and what he's talking about and dealing with as we get into our conversation. So remember, this is a real place. This actually really happened, and Jesus is telling his servant John to write to the church of Pergamum. So John would be here on the Isle of uh, Patmos because of his affiliation with Jesus. And Jesus is addressing the seven churches uh, in Asia uh, through the pen of John. So John has a vision of Jesus, and Jesus says, Hey, John, I know you're in exile on Patmos, but I have a message to all my churches in Asia, and I want to use you to write that down and then send it to the different churches. And so that's what he does. We, he, he writes it down and kind of uh, creates messages to all the different churches. And so Pergamum is where we're at. And Pergamum is really interesting. As I've studied this past couple of weeks, I've learned a great deal about Pergamum, and it's really a fascinating city. And Pergamum was the capital city of the Roman uh, province of Asia. So this whole area, Pergamum, is kind of like the center and the hotspot. And it had a population of about 100,000 people uh, at this time. It was divided into two sections, and so there was what was called the Upper Acropolis and then the Lower Asclepian. All right? And so here's actually a picture of the upper section of uh, Pergamum. This is the Acropolis perched high up, and it was really uh, an impressive and a kind of uh, just imposing sight, right, to, to the first century uh, audience that would have been a part of what's, what's going on there. They would have been like, wow, this is really a massive and, and impressive uh, sight to behold. And so here's actually a reconstruction of Pergamum, uh, what it would have looked like uh, in the original kind of heyday, all right? And there's a lot going on, and I just want to highlight a couple things. It's a lot of information, but I think it's really helpful and interesting for us. And so the first thing I want to highlight here is that in Pergamum, there was this library that was almost unparalleled in the ancient world. They had over 200,000 volumes that were, had to be handwritten, hand-copied volumes. This was before the printing press. And so Pergamum was a literate culture, very concerned about thought and about words and about education. They had a crazy sweet library. They had a theater. They could see 10,000 people. 
And so their understanding and concern for culture and for art and for entertainment was always a very high up on their uh, kind of list of things to, to be concerned about. So we've got the library, the theater, and there were also all these temples everywhere around the city. And not only was Pergamum the capital city in a political way of Asia, but Pergamum was also the center of Caesar worship. All right, so here's a picture of Caesar. And in 29 BC, uh, this huge citadel was, was built for, for Caesar, what was called the emperor's uh, imperial cult. And people would actually worship Caesar and worship the politics and offer sacrifices to, to just totally hand themselves over to and, and kind of lift up uh, the, the politicians of that day. And so you've got the library, you've got theaters, you've got temples. There was also this thing called the Asclepian. Now this would have been kind of like the healing center of, uh, of Pergamum, all right? And it was named after this guy, Asclepius, who was a, a god, you know, considered to be a god, and he was represented by a serpent. And so, you know, he was thought to be the god of healing, but what was crazy about uh, his healing cult, that people would worship him as well, is that they would actually lay people down on the ground and let serpents climb over them and rub up against them. And they thought that that would be kind of a healing practice uh, for the people in that time. But what was kind of most interesting and most impressive about Pergamum was this temple or this altar of Zeus, right? Zeus was the chief god uh, among the, the Greco-Roman pantheon. And, and Zeus had this incredible, huge uh, altar there kind of right in the, right in the heart uh, of, of the Acropolis. And so Zeus, you know, again, he, he was continuously worshipped in Pergamum. And the fire of his altar there uh, in the center of Pergamum never went out. There was always kind of a, a blazing fire and smoke that was just billowing up uh, in the sky, all right? And actually, this altar of Zeus is really, really, really impressive and interesting, and you can actually visit it. It was reconstructed, taken down and reconstructed in Berlin. And so this is a picture uh, of the altar of Zeus. And so you can see the size. I mean, it's imposing and, and, and massive, and it's, and it's really uh, an impressive sight. And what I want you to do is to imagine being a small group of people, right? A small little group of Christians that are under this towering symbol of Zeus, all right? That, that the smoke is billowing. We're here trying to worship as a small church in Pergamum, and, and all these different gods and all these different things are happening in the church of Pergamum, all right? So there is Pergamum. It's kind of an overview. And I think it's easy for us to kind of remove ourselves from this, uh, this situation. We're just kind of like, okay, that's interesting history, but that doesn't really have too much to do with me. But I think our culture is actually really similar uh, in a lot of ways, right? Our culture now in the year 2020 is kind of similar to the things that were happening in Pergamum. And if you think about uh, how important our culture uh, and how high and, and important it is for our culture to view things like education, or things like uh, entertainment or, or politics, right? To, to think that these things are so valuable and so important and so central. Or to even think about uh, health and different health practices and, and what we can do to remain healthy. And even spirituality, we, right? We've got the altar of Zeus as the kind of leader of the Greco-Roman pantheon. And so all of these different things are happening. And this is kind of the focus of the, of the city of Pergamum. And Jesus writes to the church within that city, and this is what he says. He says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And so this word sword is really uh, an important word in, in Revelation. You know, Jesus is actually pictured earlier as having a sword coming out of his mouth. 
And, and the question is, like, why, why is, is this significant when we talk about Pergamum? Why is the sword so significant? And so what's interesting is that Pergamum in this time was actually said to have the right of the sword, which was the authority to inflict death and capital punishment. Very few cities had this right of the sword, but Pergamum was one of them. And I think when Jesus talks about having the sword, he's saying, look, I'm the one with the real authority. Jesus died and came back to life. We saw that just a few uh, verses earlier in, in uh, Revelation 2.8. And he ultimately has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when Jesus views the city of Pergamum, the city that has the right of the sword, and he says, I am the one with the sword, we can see that Jesus really has authority, not only over life and death, but over all of existence, all authority in heaven and earth. What's additionally interesting is that Jesus is pictured with a sword, like I said, coming out of his mouth, which represents his word that cuts and penetrates. He says, I am the one with the sword, with the capacity to delineate to the finest detail of what is true and what is right, and to, and to navigate between what is false and what is true. And the, the Bible itself, actually, Scripture is called the sword of the Spirit. In, in, in Ephesians, right? And so the, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, has again the capacity to cut right to the quick and to, and to get things very, very clearly. In fact, in Hebrews, it's called the living, the living word that is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it pierces even to the division of, of joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And so when Jesus addresses Pergamum as the one with the sword, man, this is a powerful and a weighty statement. Jesus is saying, I am the one with the sword. Yeah, Pergamum has the right of the sword, but I ultimately am the one with the sword. And so he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, right? In a culture that is overwhelmed by towering altars to, to spirituality, to different, different gods and, and different ways to think about how to interact with those gods, and in a culture that is overwhelmed and obsessed about health and trying everything they can, including like letting snakes crawl all over them to pursue health. And in a, and in a culture that is consumed with the worship of uh, politicians and, and of, of totally handing themselves over to that. In the midst of all of those things, Jesus says, I am the one with the sword. I'm the one with the power over life and death. And I can cut through this culture's confusion with, with my word, with the word of my mouth. And so for us, right, we hear that and we're like, okay, that's interesting. It's great that Jesus has the ability to cut through these things in Pergamum. But what about me? And in the confusion and in the complexity of my life, does Jesus even know what's going on? Is Jesus even aware of the things that are happening in my life, right? This, this is interesting. Jesus has the sword for, for this, for Pergamum, and that's what he's addressing it to. But what about me? Which is why I think the next words that Jesus says to the church of Pergamum are really exciting and really, uh, really interesting. And he goes on to say to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live, right? I know where you live. Now, when you first hear that, that sounds a little bit creepy, especially if Jesus just said, I have a sword, right? So it's really never a good idea to go up to somebody and say, I have a sword and I know where you live. You could actually, that could be an assignment for you this week if you want to go up to a stranger and just say, I have a sword and I know where you live and like, let us know, email us about that. But what's interesting is that Jesus says, look, I know, I know the details of your situation. I'm not, I'm not creepy. I just really know what's going on. 
You know, he, he's, he's totally aware of and in tune with the situation that's happening in Pergamum. And as we've said uh, in this series is that though these are the words for, like, to Pergamum, right, that, that he actually wrote specifically to Pergamum, they're also the words for us and that we can learn and engage with what Jesus uh, is saying here. And in a really big way, I think what these words reveal is that Jesus really actually knows what's going on. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know what's going on. And in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the confusion and kind of the misguided frustration that we feel, you know, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And we don't, you know, I don't know what's going on. I barely ever know what's going on at all. But we can be assured that Jesus does know what's going on. He says, I know where you live. And so I think that's something that you might want to write down in your Bible or if you're taking notes. Jesus knows what's going on. He's aware and he's concerned and he's right there with you. And he goes on to say this. After he says, I know where you live, which is a really powerful statement, he just continues to amp it up. He goes on to say, all right, I know where you live. And then he says this, where Satan has his throne, where Satan has his throne. And I think for some of you at this point, you might be like, Satan, really? That's where we're going right now? Like, I, this is what we're talking about? And this might be something that you actually find kind of laughable about the whole Christian thing, right? Are we really talking about some kind of like horned gargoyle like that just jumps out from behind a, a tombstone or something like Satan is really what we're talking about right now. This is little kid territory. But here's what I want to tell you. I really want to share this with you. This is important is that Satan is actually real. He doesn't just pop out from behind some kind of tombstone on, on Halloween with like a hot poker to like to get you. But the Bible teaches that Satan is real. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about Satan, and it really reveals how he operates and how he uh, is effective in, in the world. And so one of the things the Bible says is that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that Satan is deceptive and cunning, and he's tricky, and he knows the best move to deceive and to manipulate, that he wants to come in and appear a certain way and then kind of sucker punch you and come in from a different direction. The Bible goes on to say in different places that he prowls around looking for someone to devour, that he is vicious and voracious in his appetite to, de to destroy and to devour, that Satan has a hunger to hurt you and to cause harm and to cause pain, and that he blinds the minds of unbelievers, that he seeks to suppress the truth and offer alternatives to the truth that seem to be more appealing. Right? He, he seek, seeks to like inoculate and numb the minds of unbelievers so they won't, won't turn to Jesus. Right? Satan is, uh, he, he, he masquerades, he prowls around, he, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. And the Bible goes on to say he's a liar and a murderer. That from the very first appearance of Satan in the Garden of Eden, his, his, his presentation was that of lies and manipulation and deception leading ultimately to death. Satan appears to, to Eve and he says, hey, did God really say you should live this way? No, 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 no. You got to do your own thing. Right? He presents this lie that basically says to find life, you have to flee from the author of life. And what I want you to know is that Satan is real and that he hates you and that he wants you dead. Right? In fact, he's not only the deceiver and the liar of, of just individuals, he's also the deceiver of the nations. And so not only does he work, again, on an individual level, but he seeks to deceive and infect whole nations and cultures. 
And he's actually really effective at this. He's, he's powerful and manipulative, so much so that the Bible says he's the prince of this world. And Ephesians says that, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And that he's effective in making negative things happen. So that, that when we look back at Pergamum and when we, we think about all these different things that Satan is capable of doing, and we think, you know, man, all these different gods are worshipped and all these different things are focused on. And Satan deceives and manipulates and uses any means necessary to distract or to detract from a real encounter and an embrace of Jesus, right? Satan is the temporary prince and he uses all these different means to distract from the truth of Jesus. But what I want you to really hone in on is the fact that Jesus, that, that Jesus ultimately is going to defeat Satan because Satan is the temporary prince of this world. Right? Satan is the temporary prince of this world, but Jesus is the eternal king. And so Satan is and will be destroyed by the eternal king of the universe. In Genesis, we see that God says, man, Satan, your head is going to be crushed ultimately by Jesus. And in 1 John, it says that Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the enemy and that ultimately Satan is thrown into a lake of fire, eternally punished for his rebellion against God. And so again, this is something that you might want to write down. This is really important and I think it's valuable even as we wrestle through who this Satan is, is that Satan is the temporary prince of this world, but Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. And, and Satan and Jesus are not on equal playing fields. It's, it's not like they're, they're you know, equally powerful and it's just a battle of good and evil. That Satan is nowhere near as powerful as Jesus and that God has ultimate authority and power and will not be defeated. It's not, it's, not, it's not a close battle. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. And so Satan is the temporary prince of this world, but Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. And so look what Jesus says to this church in Pergamum in which Satan has his throne. I think it's really interesting. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce me. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so this idea of remaining true to my name, some translations say remaining loyal or clinging to my name. And literally what it means here is to, to hold fast. Jesus is saying, I know where you live. I know the situation you're in. I know what's going on and that Satan is really powerfully effective in manipulating your situation. But even in the midst of that pressure and that persecution, you remain true to my name. And he even goes so far as to mention Antipas. He says, you didn't renounce your faith, church. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so the early Christians, man, they were made to declare that Caesar, not Jesus, was Lord. And if they resisted, they would be killed. And I think the fact that Jesus refers to Antipas specifically here, it's like, man, I can see, I can see, and I'm, I'm watching what's going on, that even in the midst of all this external pressure and all these, these, these different competing elements that are trying to make you renounce my name, you've stayed faithful and you've stayed true to my name, just like Antipas. And I love, again, that he, that he calls him out, Antipas, specifically by name. And I think what that does is it shows us that not only does Jesus know what's going on, I know where you live, I know what's going on, but it also shows us that Jesus, he knows you. 
and he knows me. And he knows that in the midst of the confusion and the chaos and the pressure, that he's right there. He's aware of what's going on. He's aware of what's happening in Pergamum. And he's aware of what's happening and, and the pressure that we're under in, 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 modern, in modern times as well. He's aware of what's happening with us, even down to the individual. And he, he commends us for standing firm in the midst of external pressure. Right? He knows what's going on and he knows us. And so while that's really sweet and good, and those are things that are commendable, Jesus also goes on to say, man, I've, I've really witnessed some other things that I want to kind of bring to your attention, church in Pergamum. And so he goes on to say, even though you hold fast to my name, I've got a little bit of a beef with you. And this is what he says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, right? There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And I know this is a lot but I want to break it down for you here just for a minute. And so the first thing I want to point out to you here is that he says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And so he says, some, not all of you, are holding to a certain teaching, right? Rather than, as he says, holding fast or clinging to my name, he says, some of you are following the teaching of this guy Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. And so their story, again, is, uh, is a, a complex story, but it's found in the Old Testament. And in the book of Numbers, God's people, Israel, were being blessed by God. They were liberated from uh, captivity and slavery in Egypt, and they were conquering all these different armies that were opposed to God. But, but Balak was the king of Moab, all right? So Balak was there watching Israel as it had been uh, liberated from captivity and watching Israel conquer all these surrounding environments. And he was terrified of the Israelites. And so he hired this magician, Balaam, all right? Balaam was a magician and he hired him to curse the Israelites. He said, hey man, can you go out and like pronounce curses against Israel? But Balaam could only bless every time he went to go curse only blessings would come out. And you could actually read this story uh, in Numbers 23 through, through 31. And so eventually, this is a little bit frustrating for Balak, and eventually Balaam advised Balak about Israel's weak spot. And Balaam said, look, here's what you got to do. If you want to mess them up, you need to use sex and idolatry. And so Balak sends women, sends Moabite women to seduce the Israelites. And this is what's being referred to here uh, in Numbers 25. It says, the men, that is the Israelite men, began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So this created some huge problems for Israel. They abandoned the one true God, right? And God was upset and hurt by this, not because he's just an angry and vindictive God, but because they turned away from life and they turned away from the blessing that was offered to them and they worshiped and served false gods. And so some of the Pergamum church, what, what John says in, in Revelation, what Jesus says to the church of Pergamum in Revelation is that some of the church in Pergamum is doing the same thing. They're following Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And he says, likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know very much about the Nicolaitans, but apparently their teaching was, was contrary to God. And what Jesus focuses in on in these false teachings, right, of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites is this idea of idolatry 
and sexual immorality. And he says, this is what I have against you. Though you as a church have stood firm against the external pressure, right? Though you, though you have st- stayed uh, steadfast in your commitment to me, even unto death, some of you internally are failing in the ways of, of, of idolatry and sexual immorality. And so I want to hone in on these just for a second here, starting with this idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. All right, and so the practice during this time, right, in Pergamum, was to offer some of an animal to a god on their altar, right? To, 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 to sacrifice an animal, to place some of their body on an altar, but then to take the other part and eat it for yourself. And this represented like eating together, like sharing a meal. And it indicated an intimacy and a dedication and a commitment and like a partnership and a participation in relationship with that God. And so when you would eat a food that was sacrificed to an idol, what you were doing was saying that you're letting your life be defined by your relationship with Zeus or with Asclepius or whatever. And so this idea of idolatry, man, of, of eating food sacrificed to idols, it was, it was prevalent in Pergamum. And some of the church at Pergamum was, was falling into that. And here's the thing. You know, an idol, really, it's, it's anything that you value or put above God. And it's the thing that, in your, in your life, that is the most important thing to you. And so for some, again, in Pergamum, it could have been Zeus or Caesar or Asclepius, right? It could have been spirituality or politics or, or health. But for us, really, we, we suffer from idols as well. And we try to serve and worship different idols in our own lives. And so it might be our career, right? It might be our favorite uh, political candidate. And maybe it's our, our health and, and preserving our health or our rights as Americans, our rights to, to preserve being able to do what we want and our freedom. And maybe it's our kids and our kids' education and, and, and that our kids have a good experience in life. And whatever it is, there are all these idols, both in Pergamum and now, and we face them and they're real. It reminds me of a, a quote from this book, Discipleship on the Edge. It's a book we've been referring to uh, over the past several weeks, kind of an introductory commentary on Revelation. And referring to this passage, this is what Daryl Johnson has to say. He says, Idols, of course, are not made only of wood and stone. They're made of cultural values, political agendas, lifestyles, corporate ethos, even religious movements. Idolatry of any sort is never a neutral act. Indeed, it is always a positive evil. And to be honest with you, I think this is a pretty heavy quote. And what he's saying, and really I think what Jesus is saying, is that none of us are immune to idolatry. That some of us are more devoted to idols than to Jesus. And I know I'm guilty of this in a really serious way. I'm, 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 I'm guilty of putting things above Jesus and, and preferring myself above, above him. I, I'm devoted to my own comfort, to my own joy, to my own pleasure. And so I found it kind of helpful, but sort of challenging to ask a couple questions of myself to see the ways in which I struggle with idolatry. And so I'd like to pose these questions to you as well to consider and kind of in the most practical way I can. And so here are questions that you could ask about idolatry. What is the central focus of my life for real? What is actually the thing that I consider and think about the most? And I think this is a hard question And like I said, if I'm answering honestly, sometimes it's myself or my comfort or my pleasure or my convenience or my control. And what I would ask you to do and what I'm trying to do more and more is to is to search my heart, search your heart 
and ask God to make it clear what is the central focus of my life for real. And I think another question that might be really helpful for you to ask yourself is what do my private thoughts and actions reveal about my idols? If I do an inventory of the things I I think about the most and, and the things that I do, even in the private things that maybe nobody will ever see or know about, what does that reveal about what is most valuable to me? And in addition to idols, uh, in a kind of general way, Jesus goes in to, to press right, right into something very, very uh, sensitive uh, in everyone's life. And Jesus goes on to talk about sexuality in particular. And so he says, yeah, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And so honestly, I think the sexuality conversation is absolutely central uh, in our culture. And if you're investigating Jesus, you know, this, this actually might be the sticking point with you. You might, uh, you know, like and enjoy church and, and life group and stuff. And, you know, the whole Medina East thing or whatever. You might think, oh, yeah, this is great. But you still are kind of holding yourself uh, a little bit distant from Jesus. And you might think, you know what? The Bible's definition of sexuality is just antiquated and regressive and wrong. And I really, I think that's the position of our current culture, for sure. You know, I think that our, our culture, the culture we're living in right in this moment, says that the Bible's take on sexuality is absolutely inaccurate and wrong and bad. And I, I think that uh, on this point, our culture right now in America and the, the city of Pergamum are in agreement. That their position in, in Pergamum was that sex should be completely unrestrained, that there should be no limits, and just whatever feels right, just do that, right? And so in contrast to that, a totally pervasive uh, f- freedom of sexuality, in contrast, the Christians believe that sex was created by God and that, and that sex is to be enjoyed and experienced exclusively between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. You know, Christians believe that, that this is the beautiful design for sex, that God created sex and that he knows what is best and that he has a desire and, 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 a, and a purpose for sex and that it's between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. In fact, we really think that sex is awesome here uh, at Medina East. We're real pro-sex, but uh, the thing is, uh, you know, the differing positions and opinions about uh, sexuality have really created a lot of tension in our culture. And so I don't have a ton of space to really get into the the whole conversation here, but I would recommend a series that we did a couple years ago called The Sex Talk. The Sex Talk was uh, an amazing series, and you can find it on our website or on our app. And I think it's very helpful and interesting, and really I would recommend it to you, especially if that's something that you're trying to process through, like what is the church's position on sex and and sexual issues, you know? All that to say, right, we think about it, and it's it's an important thing to, to consider, But in Jesus' letter to Pergamum, he calls out their sexuality, right? And he makes it very clear and he says, this I have against you, you practice sexual immorality. So in light of this, I think it would be really helpful to wrestle with these questions. And I know this might make some of us squirm a little bit, and so I'm going to try and ask them as gently as I can, but I think these are really important questions to ask. And the question might be like this, who defines my view of sexuality, culture or Jesus? I think this is a really important question. And I think another important question, in in a specific way to oneself, 
is who determines my personal sexual behavior, me or Jesus, right? And I know, like I said, I know that this might cause you to squirm a little bit or to feel like, oh my gosh, the church is really raining down their judgment on me. And what I want you to know from the bottom of my heart as a representative of, of Medina East and as a representative of the Church of Jesus Christ is that Grace Church is comprised of idolatrous and sexually broken people, right? I myself am an idolatrous and sexually broken person. I am a sinner in need of grace and salvation. And so we at Medina are not, we're not shocked or surprised by failure or by brokenness. Right? We want you to, to recognize that we, we understand that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're not surprised by it or freaked out by it. But we're also not totally ambivalent toward, uh, toward brokenness, right? Because Jesus isn't either. He cares so much about you. He cares so much about the church in Pergamum and so much about the church in Medina that, that he wants to speak a word and say, look, I, I love you, but, but man, you have, to, you have to understand that this is going to hurt you that idolatry and that sexual brokenness are going to have a negative impact in your life and you need to turn from me. But the reality is, like I said, is that we are called Grace Church. And we're called Grace Church for a reason. Because we believe that it is the grace of God and the mercy of God that draws us in to relationship with Him. And that He doesn't just want to condemn us or cause us to feel guilt and shame, but that He wants to draw us in to a renewed relationship with Him. And so to the broken and hurting people in Pergamum and to the broken and hurting people here, uh, here and now, Jesus has this to say. And I think this is so important and valuable. He says, repent, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so what he does is e even in the midst of our chaos and our brokenness and our pain, he gives all of us the opportunity to, to make it right to be made right with God. And that opportunity is to repent. He says, I have this thing for you to repent. And it means, it just means turning, turning from my old ways, right? Turning from my, my idolatry or my focus on things other than God, turning from my sexual brokenness or my addictions or whatever, turning from those things and turning toward Jesus. I turn from something and I turn to something. And what Jesus is calling us into is to turn to him, to turn to his love, to his mercy, to his grace, and to, into his kingdom, to embrace the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus' primary message when he walked the earth was, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus wants you to experience the joy and the liberation and the beauty of being a part of his kingdom. To say that Jesus is Lord. And the good news is that he rules and he reigns and that he has something for my life and I can participate in that and that I can merge onto the, the super highway of his, of his life and his vitality. He has a story and it's going and I can be a part of it. And that's what's available to you. He says, repent, turn, turn from your ways and come and embrace me. But then he says, otherwise, I'll, I'll soon come to you. Otherwise, I'll soon come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so Jesus, again, as we've said throughout this series, is that Jesus is the one that holds his church. And he can make it rise or he can make it fall. And the unfortunate reality is that as it stands today, the Christian presence in this part of the world has been almost totally annihilated. 
And we need to consider the weight of that as, as a Medina East Campus, I think, and as a church in America that Jesus says, look, I want you to turn to me and I want you to embrace my liberating power. Otherwise, I, I'm going to remove you from a part of my uh, situation, right? There are always opportunities for individuals to follow Jesus, but the corporate church sometimes can be taken out. And so he says, you know, otherwise, if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And so what I would ask us to consider is that in, in light of the truth of his word, we need a posture of repentance to say, man, your word is what is true. And I, I want to cling to that and let that be the central focus of my life and orient me toward reality. And I, I'm called to turn from my old ways and turn to Jesus. And that's available to us. Jesus is available and he wants to have a relationship with us, but we have to cling to him. We have to actually engage with and encounter the real living Jesus. And this is heavy and intense, but I love the way the letter to Pergamum ends. He goes on to say this, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? What he's saying is, if this has resonated with you, if you've heard this and it's resonated with you, then embrace it. It's available. If you have the capacity, please embrace this truth. Let them, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. He says, to the one who, some translations say, who overcomes. To the one who, in the midst of the pressure and the oppression and the confusion, in, in the midst of, of those that are experiencing this pain in, in, a, in a broken culture, to, to the one who victoriously embraces and stands firm in Jesus, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it, right? And so we've got hidden manna and a white stone and a new name. Now these things, you know, uh, initially seem kind of like, what, what are those things? And so I just want to highlight them real quick. And so manna actually refers to the bread that God supplied Israel when they wandered through the desert for 40 years, right? God miraculously provided sustenance for them in the desert. But Jesus, when Jesus comes around, he says, man, I am the bread of life. I am the eternally uh, sustaining uh, presence that you need. I, I, I need you to embrace me. And if you embrace me and actually take me in and, and engage with who I am, I will sustain you. I'm the, the, hidden, the hidden manna is available. And Jesus, the truth is that beyond what you can imagine, beyond what you can fathom in your, in your mind, Jesus will satisfy and will sustain you. And he wants to be that sustenance for you if you engage with him. And if you are victorious in his name, he'll give you that hidden manna and he'll give you a white stone. And white stones were associated with acquittal in court. And so if someone stood before a court and it was time for the verdict, there would either be a white stone or a black stone given. And, and so uh, this white stone is representative of, of, being, uh, of being set free, of, of not being held guilty any longer, but of being acquitted. Additionally, it's also a representative of a victory in an athletic competition. So if somebody won a race or a marathon or something, they would be given a white stone. And that white stone actually gave them access to the uh, victor's feast, right? And so a white stone isn't just some random old Bible thing. It's representative of forgiveness and of victory and of access to uh, a relationship and an encounter 
with Jesus, to dine with him and to participate in life and restoration with him. And last it says, I'll give you hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And so all throughout the Bible, when someone's name would change, that would mean that their whole identity would shift. And so you look back uh, at the Old Testament and you can see that God changed Sarai's name to Sarah and that he changed Jacob's name to Israel. He famously changed Simon's name to Peter. And Jesus has the capacity to make you new and to make you whole. And that is his desire for you. He wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you a new identity. And if you embrace and identify with Jesus, and if you cling to him, he will give you a new name. I love how this is presented in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. It says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And this is what Jesus wants for you. And this is what we want for you. This is what I want for you. And it's available to become, to become new in the presence of Jesus and to engage and encounter him. It's available. And even in the confusion and the nonsense and the chaos, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so, man, this is the word of God. I believe it to be true, and I know it has incredible implications for us. And so I hope that you've been uh, encouraged by our interaction with this text. And I just, man, I pray that, that you have ears to hear, that God, by his grace, gives you the ears to hear and a heart to embrace the truth of Jesus, of his love, of his power, of his grace, of his goodness. He loves you, and he wants to be a part of your life because he wants to draw you into his story. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being victorious and for allowing us access into that victory if we embrace you. God, in a culture that is uh, confused and hurting, just like the culture in Pergamum, with so many different ways to navigate reality and so many different voices and concerns. Like you say, the, 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 the city where Satan has his throne, Father, where, where Satan has come to manipulate and to deceive and to, and to hurt us. God, you are victorious. And so I want to lift up everybody that has heard this message and ask that you compel them to embrace the truth of who you are, that you allow them to be victorious and to discover the value and the implications of their identity in you. Thank you for who you are and for what you do. And thank you for being the eternal King. And it is in your name, O righteous King Jesus, that we pray. Amen.